This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. And now the pace starts to quicken as Pottawa Ward grabs P1. Looks like McLaughlin's going to tuck in behind him. Yeah, McLaughlin's under attack from Felix Rosequist. Rosequist will swing to the outside. That'll give him the inside advantage through turn number five. Rosequist will get on the curbing, and McLaughlin will be able to fend him off. Didn't look like Alex Pillow got out in front of those guys who just pitted Nick Yeoman. Oh, he sure did. So a massive undercut for Barry Wanzer and that crew for Alex Pillow. He's going to leapfrog a ton of cars and may very well be the race leader. Scott McLaughlin's going to cycle out of pit lane in second. He's going to get out ahead of Pato Award. But, Mark, it certainly looks like the biggest of winners during this pit sequence is going to be the reigning IndyCar champion. Michael Battle for the lead is on into turn four. Alex Pillow looks to the inside, then will tuck back behind. Scott McLaughlin had a run down into turn number four, but broke a little bit later than McLaughlin, and that made him check up. So two car length advantage, Scott McLaughlin over second place running Alex Pillow. But boy, Alex Pillow off of turn number seven, all of a sudden is right on the rear wing. Then as they go through the king of turn number eight, McLaughlin pulls away just a little bit. He comes off the carousel for the final time, and when he does, he'll see the twin checkers for rear win number two in the NTT IndyCar Series as Scott McLaughlin wins the Honda Indy 200 in mid-Ohio. Alex Below finishes second. That's my boy. Nice drive there, dude. Just like St. Pete, Sam Guy, he did the same thing. You crushed it. Proud of you, bud. Thank you, guys. So proud of you all. Thanks for the, the uh, stop. Amazing. Thank you. Woo! And those are just the positive highlights from the weekend, courtesy of IndyCar Radio. But we have much more to get into for the Honda Indy 200 from the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course from Sunday afternoon. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Trackside, 93.5-1075, the fan from the MS Communications Worldwide Headquarters. That's where Sam Rompsa is in. I'm Kevin Lee. Kurt Cavan is with us at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan for your Twitter questions, comments, uh, and other additions to the program, including corrections. Those are always welcome. Scott McLaughlin, now a two-time winner in IndyCar. Alex Pillow, Will Power from the back to the podium. Among the topics to delve into tonight. So as I always say, Kurt, the best way to judge a race is how deep do we go in through the field? One year at Mid-Ohio, it was one through 22, all of them. We got to five this weekend, so that's a pretty good sign. There was a lot of entertainment. Well, you bring that up, and and it's funny because since you told me that years ago, I actually pay pretty close attention to through the field. It didn't used to be one of my highlights of of a race day, although it was always nice to catch up with uh, where certain drivers were on the track and little anecdotes and stories that you might have collected that didn't fit into a normal flow of the conversation. But you're right when when it only goes a handful deep, and I'm surprised you got to five because uh, most of the topics were. Uh, were were shuffled off the air pretty quickly when action happened and and there was a lot of action it was a uh, a record number of uh, passes on track passes and passes for position by about 15 each uh, for the event and they've been racing it at Ben Ohio for a long long time of course not always has the, that stat been kept or those stats been kept but the point is that it was a busy day uh, there are storyline lines all through it. And I had to be reminded that after the race that yet again, 
the driver who won the race came from the front row. Uh, it, it, if you'd have asked me, you know, a truth, uh, put the truth out there. Is that what happened? I would have said, no, I, I think Scott McLaughlin came from way back in this crowded field and, and, uh, won the race. And sure enough, another race winner. I think it's like 80% of the races now have been won by one of the drivers that started on the front row, but, it certainly didn't feel like that from a competition and an action and an excitement standpoint. It's one of the most, uh, I said Detroit was one of the most enjoyable races we've had this season. And I think this one goes right alongside it. So let's uh, maybe just kind of go in order from those that had the best chance to win. And, and we'll start with Pato Award and really Errol McLaren SP in general, because it looked like it was going to be their weekend. Uh, they have both of their cars in the top four award wins the pole Felix Rosenquist starts fourth. He picks up a spot at the beginning of the race. They're running one, three Rosenquist is the first to fall out. And it does appear that it's uh, an engine related issue that you, you never know. And the reason I brought that up is because, Hey, there's been at least twice here recently where we all assumed it was an engine and it turns out to be, it's sort of engine related, but it's not that that engine for award from road America stayed in there. And from what I'm reading uh, from Chevy responses is, yep, this one was the engine. And then Pottle Award starts to have an issue, even while he's still leading the race. And that wasn't an engine issue. It wasn't Chevy related. It isn't even necessarily anything the team did wrong. Uh, as far as I know, they can't get fuel pressure. So it goes from great to just awful. And that opens the door for everybody else. Well, it did. I, I actually didn't feel like those that team was going to run away with it, but it did have an early no. feel uh, for for the two cars to be uh, contenders for for podiums at minimum. But you know, it, it's just unfortunate. I think the Chevy uh, information was that uh, from Rob Buckner, the the program director, is that is a team in many respects just unlucky this year. They haven't really had a had a string of problems that uh, can be connected, but they've just been unlucky. Certainly a feel for Felix Rosenquist. Pato Awards, you know, kind of had a similar plight, uh, maybe not uh, quite as much bad luck, but, but boy, they both, they both had cars that were capable of being uh, podium contenders. And you, you could just hear the frustration in, in the team radio from Pato Award. He was just, just beside himself. And, and I remember that you broke into the conversation on the TV broadcast about, about Pato's got uh, some worries. And then, you know, you kind of expect as a listener to hear a certain tone in his voice. And that was the octaves were raised up a couple octaves from there because he was, he was really spirited. He wanted to know what was going on. You know, they're trying to help him, but don't have much information from a team side. I thought Taylor Kyle handled it about as well as he could try to keep him focused on his job. And, uh, you know, within a few laps, maybe 20 laps, it seemed like uh, Pato was in the same position as as Felix sitting on the sidelines of a race that he theoretically could have won and at minimum should have been on the podium and a big points loss day when for uh, Pato in particular. Uh, they finished 20th and 24th when they could have easily been in the top five, both of them. And Pato accurately described it when he said, you know, we, we missed out on a podium. He didn't say we missed out on a win. They might have won, but the way it was looking, uh, especially if the yellow came out the same place that it did at that first one, that it still might have been Scott McLaughlin. So the way the race was won, well, first, Alex Pillow gets up there in the mix, starts seventh. He'd picked up a spot or two in the first stint. 
but he did the undercut. He came in early and might have been in position to take the lead, but McLaughlin benefited because as he was pitting, and actually it was in reaction too with all of those that had not pitted, when uh, who was it that that went off that was going to be the cause of that first caution? Uh, why don't I have that there? Was uh, that was taught, uh, that was uh, Kirkwood, I believe. Okay, so as that caution was coming out, they were in the pits, and what really got McLaughlin in front, and this is kind of what Dixon and and Pelot were a little bit annoyed with. Okay, they've held the pits open to not end anyone's race because they haven't gotten in at that point. Um, but then the caution falls while they're on pit lane, that slows the rest of the field down. So Polo is no longer allowed to go at speed. He has to start slowing down. And then beyond that, Polo still beat McLaughlin out of the pits. When, when McLaughlin exited the pits after his first stop, he was behind Alex Polo and I remember hearing on the radio they're going to swap positions because of the blend line. So once it becomes a caution situation, it's not just who exits the pits and merges with traffic that's on the track uh, headed down towards the keyhole exit of turn one. There is a blend line, and it's essentially the main straightaway. So it's pit lane before you start turning left to exit pit lane and before turn one. So because of that, McLaughlin had gotten to that pit exit line before Palo, who is forced to slow because it's now a caution before he got to that spot. But even going at a slower pace, Palo was still ahead of him on track. So that was kind of the beef that the Ganassis had there at that point. And, and James Hinchcliffe mentioned it on the broadcast. You know what? If you're going to hold the caution to allow everyone to pit, Hold it another 10 seconds to allow it to sort out naturally. So that's one thing that, you know, I think it's very possible. We're all missing something as to why it's still done that way. But that's ultimately how the race was. Maybe not won, but that's how he got the upper hand. Well, it was. And, and I know we'll get a question. We've, I've received a few myself about, you know, how does that how is that helpful? Shouldn't you throw the caution right away? And. I've I've just always felt like there'd be more people really disappointed if you were the you know you're in turn nine and you're coming to pit road and you're the last one that hasn't pitted and you got a car that's stranded but not in peril and can you just let everybody get there and pit I think ultimately that's that's where I side you know letting them go for just a few more seconds to let everybody get to pit road you know, that's just better than ruining a guy's race right there. Because if, if, if he doesn't get to pit road, if the guys, you know, later there was one with Colton Herta, but if, if the, if you don't take the opportunity to pit, then you are pretty much done. Uh, not completely, but you're pretty much done. And so I, I kind of like it being left open. If the car that's stranded is not in peril. Uh, I understand why the Ganassi cars were, were a little bit miffed. Um, I, 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 there's no perfect system and, uh, I think this is probably the best they could do, but maybe there's something I'm missing too. Chaz Schultz one is one of those that had the question. What are your thoughts on the delayed yellow on pit cycles? He says, personally, not a fan of them. Scott Dixon was one of those that said, Hey, I just want consistency 
So maybe I've missed some circumstances, but I do think they've been consistent since Kyle Novak and the stewarding system has been the same as it is. I would think Kyle is the one that's in charge of that. It's uh, Max and Ari that are calling penalties, but the race director has to decide when it's going to go yellow and so forth. And I just recall when it was done the other way, how much grief Brian Barnhart and IndyCar took uh, because the other way to do it is there is no discernment of when it comes. It's just if it's going to have to be yellow, we go yellow. And Scott Dixon, I can recall on several occasions. So I, I understand his beef on that because, you know, he's thinking back to I remember Toronto one year where he was dominant in the race and they hadn't come in and the yellow came out. Pits closed race over for him. And they used to, I think, be pretty consistent on that standpoint where it just went yellow when it went yellow. So because of feedback, they said, all right, if somebody is not in immediate need of help or if the car is not in a position where it's going to get hit, uh, then we're going to give everybody one chance to go by. IMSA generally does it the same way with Bo Barfield, a former IndyCar race director, doing that as well. So I I don't – the way they're doing it now, it it cannot be 100% because there is going to be a situation where they have to close the pits immediately because it's a serious accident, because it's an oval, uh, because it's right before pit entrance and there's just not room to negotiate because of where the safety trucks are. And these are all the things that Kyle Novak has to sort through. So maybe the best thing is that it's no rhyme or reason again, and it's going to become even more random than it, than it has been. And if you haven't pitted, you're in big trouble and that opens things up and makes things a little bit more interesting. But the screaming is going to be even louder at that point. Maybe here's what needs to happen. The off season, let's take a vote. Let's take a vote. Drivers, team managers, owners, you all get a vote and we're going to do it one way or the other. We're either going to close the pits immediately. If a caution is going to come no matter what, uh, or we're going to try to, use reason and not have as many races where someone's race is ruined randomly. But even with that, even if you do number one and say, we're going to close the pits immediately, it still takes Kurt five or six seconds to make that decision because first you have to wait and see, you know, if the guy runs off, you're going to wait and see, well, can he drive out? Has he stalled it? And if you're coming around, let's say mid Ohio turn 12 and someone goes off and is in the sand and you're getting close to pits, if you're in the window, you're going to yell pit, pit, pit and take your chances. And then it's yeah, going to close, think- you know, because he's running 13th. And and then the top 12 are not going to have a chance to pit. And the guy running 13th is going to be the leader. And he's the only one that's going to have had a chance to pit. There's no easy way. There is no easy way. Of, and, that I know of. And the point you made about, about five or six seven five or six seconds of discernment is is key because sometimes your first look at something you don't know if the drivers hit something uh you know you think about some of the crashes that we've seen don't look like much on first blush and then you see you know and i think back the one i can always come back to in this this uh is justin wilson's uh off track at uh, at mid ohio years ago uh, you know, he went bouncing through the grass and through the infield, essentially, and didn't look like much. Uh, but the pounding that he took in his back 
from that was was significant. And so you, you have to make the decision, to, you know, again, did he hit something? Is he in peril? Is he going to be able to keep driving? Is the is the track going to be, you know, disadvantaged if if uh, if the 13th place car is the one we're calling this for in the top, you know, there's just so many things. So I think you just have to process it as quickly as you can. And if you decide that, okay, the driver is good. The, the race, the racing line is good. uh, Leave it open for a few seconds. And, you know, most of the cars will have a chance to pit and they will do so in quick order. And we will have the field and the race with as much integrity left in it as, uh, as we can without it being kind of a random caution. That's the, cautions are always going to be random in nature, but the, the less, the more we can do to lessen the impact of those cautions on the field and the competition, the better. So let's get to the winner. Now we haven't really touched on Scott McLaughlin who started off the season, I think exceeding expectations. I think everyone felt like, all right, he'll be better this year. And he might win a race this year, and and he wins right off the bat in dominating fashion, and then almost wins on an oval in race number two. And you're thinking, hey, maybe he's ready for a championship, or at least ready to to be in the mix all season long. Then goes through a rough patch. Now he's got it back going again, and I would say he's back to the point. We talked about this last week, that ninth where he was in the championship is, you know, I know he's disappointed recently, but that's probably about reasonable. Now he's getting back up to where, hey, a two-time winner in a season uh, is really on the right path. I, I just feel like that second win really verifies things, and I'm wondering what that's going to do for McLaughlin's confidence. One time it's like, all right, was it just our day? Now I think, I don't know if he can get in that final weekend of the championship this year, but I think he's got a chance to stay within range because the Penske cars are just so good right now, too. So I don't hear Kurt. Sam, do you hear me? <laughs> okay, so it's just me. I see Kurt talking on our FaceTime conversation, so we'll just talk amongst ourselves here at this point, and you can work with Kurt to try to dial him back up. At least one of us is, is still going. So there's my thoughts on McLaughlin right now. And I'm also going to have to get to the bottom of Somersault versus Roly Poey. Um, I don't have it. I thought, well, really, I, I didn't know. Um, and I don't really know that I've ever heard roly poly, but that may be a down under phrase. I asked the resident gymnast showed the video and I said, is this a somersault? And she said, Savannah said, yes, that's a somersault. But it's okay. apparently a rollover, a roly poly. I like the roly poly. I think it was more of a roly poly. Uh, I, I hit the know, mute button. I, I've, I've never heard roly poly before. I hit the mute button earlier because, as you know, from last week's conversation, I've been in about all week uh, with uh, COVID. And so only have now started to kind of work through it. And in fact, I'm on the back side of it now pretty squarely, but uh, have been coughing more than uh, ah. I would like. So I'd hit the mute button and then forgot it because I was trying to pull up something. But I, I had written on IndyCar.com for tomorrow that, you know, there were people who were telling me, especially after St. Pete, that, I mean, McLaughlin's a championship contender. He might he might finish from the top five in the standings, win more than just one race. And I, I was like, I just don't think so. You know, I didn't think he could beat his, his two, consistently beat his two teammates. Uh, I didn't think he'd finish ahead of Polo or Dixon. I couldn't imagine him finishing ahead of Pato Award. And, you know, if Colton Herta had the same kind of season that I expected, that he'd be a 
you know, Colton would be ahead of him. So I, I really thought eighth, ninth, tenth felt more more likely. And of course, then you got to factor in Rossi and Pagano and Ray Hall and Grosjean. And so I've been a little bit more uh, bullish on on McLaughlin, but you know, I, I, I'm I'm impressed. Uh, he has he drove at St. Pete and at mid Ohio with not only the confidence and the maturity of, of a driver well beyond his indie car years. And he, he never really looked threatened. Um, I thought he just looked, I thought his car looked calm. Uh, I, you didn't see a lot of movement with his hands. It didn't look like even when Pelot was pressuring him that he felt rattled. Um, and I, I just couldn't have been more impressed with the drive from McLaughlin. And so, uh, that that's that's you know really where I come down on it. Now as for the the role, obviously he uh, he tried to do some some fancy footwork when he got out of the car in St. Pete and pretty much just kind of collapsed and then and then did his role. But this was kind of a, a soft role. I'm surprised Savannah didn't call it a roly poly or something to that effect because it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. Just a somersault tends to be more aerial in my book, uh, but this was an on the ground. Uh, rollover. So anyway, he made uh, another good thing about McLaughlin is he can kind of poke fun at himself. And, and that was another good example of his personality and, and how he can take a joke and, and, you know, he kind of, he looked more sturdy getting out of the car this time. He's, he's, uh, he's perfected the, the victory lane thing as well. And if we can just get him to stop drinking out of the shoe, I, I, I just don't have any time for that one. I don't, I don't see that in my victory celebrations. My shoe isn't uh, that that isn't a place where I'm keeping the most sterile of things. So I'm not just because you're not willing to devote it all to winning and and guys like Scott McLaughlin are Uh, (laughs) guilty as charged. (laughs) There you go. I, I think we're safe. I don't, I don't see you being in victory lane anytime soon. So we're probably safe on that front and we'll let, uh, McLaughlin and, and a few others continue to do the shoey. He's, you know, he, he's a fun guy. We, we said this when we first met him and we had heard it from afar. Um, he, he's someone that I think can help grow the brand a bit. And as someone that America, as they more get to know him, uh, one of my favorite quotes, I, I looked at the notes of the press conference today. I did a little cut and paste on that. Hopefully, hopefully I can find that. But did you see the picture? I'm sure it was for the bus bros that I didn't see until I got home Sunday night, but he referenced that in our victory lane interview or something like, you know, I was dressed up as a bald Eagle this weekend. So, you know, there's nobody more American than me at this point, but his quote was essentially, I'm going to use that picture. It was, it was, he dressed basically in a big bird suit on top of a camper and new garden wearing an uncle Sam costume with flags in the background and, and just good fun. So good on them for being able to poke fun at themselves. By the way, those are the only two drivers that have won more than once this year, so that's working. But his point was, hey, I ought to be able to use that picture to to, to help me get my my citizenship. You know, I'm, I'm fully fledged an American now if I'm going to this uh, extent. So good on McLaughlin. Fun stuff for him this weekend and a really, really good drive. And the gift it always gives is willpower. There's nothing routine anymore from willpower Oh, the guy who's won more polls than anyone not named Mario Andretti has made a habit of driving through the field. It's one thing to qualify 21st, but the spin on the first lap and drive through a dozen cars legitimately, and then maybe get a little bit of help with some yellows, but finishing on the podium, uh, 
I'm not going to say saves the championship because others had problems too, but you go from 21st and you pick up seven points in the championship. Not a bad day there. No, not a bad day at all. And, and, you know, I guess let's, let's start with the, uh, the reason he was 21st. He was, he was on the racetrack yeah. and, and warming up his tires in, in round one of qualifying. Doesn't see Elio Castroneves coming. His team doesn't tell him he gets, uh, flagged for, uh, impeding progress of, of Castroneves. Obviously he didn't mean to do it. They had a great little chit chat. It was kind of funny to see a team driver go down to another team's pit box and just stand there. Like he, like he, you know, was very familiar with the setting because Elio had been there about 20 years. So he clearly knew all the players involved and it was no tension at all. You don't normally see it quite like that, that friendly, but uh, you know, it was just, it was good. Uh, it was the right call and, and power starts 21st. And then I was, I was surprised he got greedy in turn nine. You know, he sees the opening on Christian Lundgaard, takes it, goes to the inside, takes that position, and then just got up on the curb and, and ran into uh, Sato. It wouldn't have been surprising, honestly, if, if Sato would have had contact, that he would have gotten an avoidable contact penalty right there. But all the, the damage, if you will, uh, was on the 12 car, so power wasn't flagged. You know, he spins, so obviously he's going to the back of the field. He pits, and, um, you know, sometimes that works out in your favor. You get kind of ahead on, this, on the pit cycle, but with most of the field going to be in a two-stop strategy, that really wasn't going to help him much, uh, but having that extra stop. But, uh, you know, it wasn't really the, the cautions that, that helped vault him up through the field, but it did allow him to kind of get back in the pack or get the pack tightened up a little bit, gave him some more passing opportunities, but he legitimately passed those cars. It wasn't like he was out of, out of sequence or out of cycle and, uh, and got this great benefit when the caution came. Uh, but he did use the restarts to his advantage and, you know, good on him. He just continues to dig and, and uh, keep waiting for the big moment for, for power to <laughs> kind of show up and, and be the old will power a little bit, go, go ballistic, but he, he hasn't done that. He's been great. And uh, although it doesn't do as well for your TV time, I mean, you, you tend to have some good moments with will on pit road. So, or you have had. Yeah, so. And as much as I say, he's a different willpower, you know, as we talked about last week, I hadn't seen the fact that he rammed another car on the track and he was lucky to have his wife Liz there to uh, counsel him before he did the television interview, because I think he said some other things while he was chatting before he went on television. So, oh, it's still in there. It is still in there and it, it may show itself before the season is over because Will Empower, Willpower is one of the most interesting characters that you're going to find, and he is intense, he's brilliant, he's fascinating, and he's fun. Uh, so there's the podium. We have much more to get to, including some that had really important needed days like Renus VK. But I think next, we need to talk about the dumpster fire uh, and, and what happened within one team and where do we go from here. We'll get into that, and we've got some uh, uh, radio. I heard some more stuff this week, of or today, uh, actually, that I had not heard over the weekend. So some of that I think we have for you to come up in just a moment on Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Alexander Rossi, and you're listening to Trackside. Ridiculous. Twice. He does it twice. No, one, twice. That's 10-4. We're watching the replay right now. 
What do you want me to do? Just uh, block everyone behind and not to go ahead? want you to protect your two teammates up front. Because Rossi put me in the wall, so I'm not going to protect him. Rossi is not a lap down, remember. You are. I told you to protect your teammates, not pass them. You're lap down. I didn't understand. I'm going to let him buy. Get out your popcorn. I saw on the Twitters today, uh, like a 15-minute cut of... Grosjean's on board starting around this time and there's a lot of nothing for a little while but then there's some juicy stuff and that last voice did you recognize that last voice Kurt I didn't no I could not get it I I'm pretty sure that was Michael Andretti that wasn't the I strategist thought it was, yeah, yeah so the first voice I think was probably Josh Freund who's uh, the strategist on the 28 but uh, Michael is normally in that pit Often is he can kind of float around, but I think that was Michael. So as defiant as Grosjean was, and we'll get to all what happened, he did acquiesce a couple of different times. Uh, he then, and that was for passing Devlin DeFrancesco, and he let Devlin go back around. And after he passed Rossi later on, he let Rossi go back around. So, you know, as much as it's, you know, I don't care what you guys think. I'm going to do what I want to do. He, even in the moment, realized um, I've been hired. So that means I could be fired. I'd better actually kind of listen to what the boss has to say and try to get along a little bit at this point. Now, here's also what we didn't hear in uh, a conversation captured. I think Christopher DeHard filmed it with his phone and Nathan Brown was asking the questions of the Indianapolis Star, where after the race, Grosjean said of Rossi, he's an absolute idiot and replaced it a couple and repeated it a couple of times. And that's not in the middle of the race. That's, you know, 10 or 15 minutes afterwards. So here's what happened from memory, because when I watched the race again yesterday, there were things I didn't even notice before. I think Rossi and Grosjean might have made contact three times. Yes, not just two times. I'm pretty sure it was three. Yeah, so so first one in the keyhole, Rossi's on the inside, says he had uh, understeer and kind of slid out, and they made contact, and no big deal. He's off in the dirt. Well, I, I say no big deal. It was a big deal to Romain Grosjean. Next time around, harder contact, and it looks at first like Rossi just turns left and just takes him to the fence. But then you see the uh, more of an onboard camera and the wheel got knocked out of Rossi's hands and he lost control of the car. And that's why it went left there. And then I can't recall the third one was uh, later on when they were, I think, passing for position. And uh, although although. Grosjean was a lap down. And then to add on that, Grosjean punted Colton Herta. Well, I think where I think he was a lap down at that time and punted a teammate. Herta's race had already been ruined because he was running third and missed the, the caution to get into the pits and was running 15th or something at the time. But that impacted him. Rossi nailed DeFrancesco. Uh, am I missing anything else there? Only because you don't have any more cars. So... <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think if there had been more cars in the field from the Andretti camp, there might have been more things to discuss. Uh, but at this point, uh, we have all of them covered. And then during that uh, interview with Grosjean on pit lane, it's abruptly interrupted by PR saying he has to go now. And 
Grosjean looks cheapestly and so okay. And that was because, and I understand why PR interrupted him because PR had been said, I want them here now. And I'm not sure that I would want to go to Michael Andretti say, and say, I'm sorry, he's finishing an interview. <laughs> so yeah, it's, you need to get there right now. And this will maybe bring us up to another question that some people have had. And, and Nathan Brown uh, really got into it from the Indianapolis Star and detailed it really well, what was going on. And Lawrence Cunningham has a question. He says, uh, on Nathan Brown being asked, told to delete a video of a conversation, is that a common occurrence? What is the rule for print media on video? I know as a photographer, I have to have special permission to video. And then also points out what a drive by number 12. So I believe I should go to Nathan's Twitter and he, he documented it all uh, Sunday night. So he was doing an interview with Michael, I believe back near the, the transporters, which is a public area. And then Alexander Rossi's dad came by, who's not just a typical dad. He is the driver manager of Alexander Rossi, Peter Rossi. And they got into a very stern conversation at that time, very much within earshot of Nathan Brown. And the new multimedia video or media world requires that newspaper writers do a lot of photojournalism. So he gets out his camera and he's recording it. And a team PR rep asks him or says, you must delete that. And there's a little debate going on there. So this is not something that I've ever dealt with because I don't videotape things and it's not what I'm asked to do, luckily. Um, so what's the protocol there? I'll, I'll say this. This is not the only sport where that would happen. I guarantee that happens in many other sports. I know this from covering the NFL for many years. You know, for example, with the Colts, we at one point were allowed to watch practice. You know this. You were covering the Colts at the time. We weren't allowed to bring a pen uh, out onto the practice field. <laughs> this is, I think, no, I, I think there were cell phones. I can't remember if it was before there were cameras on cell phones. But we were not allowed to bring any note-taking devices out on the practice field. For example, so I couldn't tell the Cowboys, hey, 18 – Peyton Manning looks pretty good today. You might want to watch out for him. Or I think he's going to throw it to number 88, Marvin Harrison. That's the extent of what. I, but so everybody is very protective of information. And I think I've heard in training camp before of Team PR going to official videographers. And you're not allowed to show. They get on you if you show up a training camp practice fight, things like that and can threaten you with taking away your credentials and so forth. So how do we stand on this? How is this navigated? Well, let's start with the fact that uh, there is a difference between a public space and a private space. When you're talking mm -hmm. about the Colts being at the practice field, uh, you're not in a public space. You're in their private workout space. You're not standing Agreed. on 56th Street looking in, you know, from a place where everyone else could be and, and then taking notes. You're, you're in an access-granted area. And as my understanding, and I thought, by the way, I thought Nathan uh, has handled this excursion extremely well. I thought he detailed what happened. He detailed the response. Uh, and I applaud the, the individuals involved for kind of 
Nathan and the team for kind of handling this while public in some respects uh, for for kind of diffusing this. Uh, look, it appears Nathan was in a very public area where anyone uh, that listens to this radio show could have recorded the exact same thing. It's well within his right to not only record an audio, but also a video. If he's, you know, now if he's in a team transporter, he might have uh, kind of a different expectations involved. I mean, I feel very strongly about this as a former journalist, that uh, he has every right to, to record that very public uh, situation. Honestly, I'm surprised that other people didn't grab the same video. And, you know, I I don't think it was uh, the right thing to do for anyone, regardless of who it was, to ask him to delete it. Now, I've been asked a lot of times, hey, can you not use that? You know, there might be a a situation, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, but there's kind of a different, I mean, this is his public phone, his personal phone uh, to ask to re- to delete it or to delete it for him or whatever happened was not the right thing to do. And and Nathan, I'm, I'm taking a read from his Twitter page. He said, I do want to note, he tweeted, since Sunday's post-race, I've had multiple conversations with Andretti's communications team. They've acknowledged mistakes were made in, thing, in how things were handled, and that shouldn't go unnoticed. It was very much appreciated. Lots of lessons to be learned. And I think that that puts an end to it right there from my standpoint. They shouldn't have asked him to do it. Uh, could he? Could they have asked him not to, uh, you know, distribute it? Sure. I mean, I don't think that would have been uh, unfair for them to make that request, but not to insist that he delete it. So anyway, I thought it was handled uh, eventually the right the right way, but not only by Nathan, who didn't make a make a huge stink about it. He did put it out there. He reported it because it's part of his job, but he also didn't make it. A, he, he didn't overblow it. And then when, when uh, parties on both sides had, had constructive uh, post moment conversations, uh, he, he thanked them for it and, uh, and, and has left this on a good note. I feel for a PR rep in this situation, too, and I, I honestly don't know which PR rep it was. I know this. They have a couple of PR reps that are in their first, first year with the team. So you're, you see this situation going, and you just want to make sure you're not the one blamed for it escalating or getting even more negative attention. So you're thinking, what can I do uh, to help? And you don't have a lot of time to make that decision. So that's difficult. Here's the other side of this, I would say, is what I think is even harder for for Nathan to navigate through. I believe he was very much within his right to do exactly what he did. This is a public space. It's fair game. It's public. But then, and, and you can speak to this too, I think we all have to decide, is this one nugget of scintillating, fascinating information, is it worth potentially alienating a source and someone you're going to need down the road to do your job? And I still don't know what the right answer is on these things. I think ultimately the right answer is you need to tell the public the story, but you might not have as much ammunition to tell the public the whole story if a team one of only 10 in the series says, nope, you get no more access. You And there are some entities 
not necessarily in motorsport, because I think in motorsport, they understand they need the media. But in some worlds, you'd be shut out. And if they can take credentials away from you, if they can tell their drivers to not cooperate with you, that might hurt you in the long road. So the answer to the question is there is over one's career, mine spanning 30 years, there had to be hundreds of times where somebody asked me either, can you not use the information or can you use it um, later? Or, they, you know, they made some request relative to distribution of information. And you have to make a, it's kind of a game time decision. I mean, you have to pick and choose your battles. There are some things that just have to get out. Um you know, there are also times, and I spent time covering Bob Knight at Indiana. Yeah, there are many of those times where you just you just have to you realize that if you're going to move forward tomorrow with any kind of access, you've just got to pick and choose your battles. Now, mm-hmm. in this case, what what made it different for me was, you know, they they ask him to delete it or, or may have even deleted it himself. They may have even deleted it on his own phone. That's different in my opinion. Again, had they asked him to not distribute the information, I might've felt differently about it than essentially taking his notebook. I mean, that's essentially it, what it, they did. It, it reminded me of the scene from the Godfather and I'm just uh, hearing about it rather than seeing it when you know, at the wedding, Sonny Corleone comes out and takes the photographer's cameras, throws them down on the ground, and then throws $100 bills. And I don't think PR had $100 bills to throw around, but it's, no, there's no conversation here. You're not going to use this. So, yeah, probably a little more delicately would have been the right path there. And I would just kind of go back to what you were getting at. Uh, people in this position, you've got your your team owner clearly upset. Uh, he's in a public space. He's a little bit. Uh, I, I wasn't present, but you would say out of, uh, not out of control, but you would say that he was he w- he probably should have been in a private space uh, to have some of the conversations he was having and to make some of the comments that he made. So it was clearly a tense situation and intense situations. Um, you know, you're going to react how you react. Again, I will go back to the fact that Nathan and the and the Andretti team apparently handled it the right way after that and have have resolved the situation. And I think all parties uh, might handle this differently in the future. But, you know, it's an explosive situation with multiple drivers involved, a team ang- team owner angry, uh, all of this playing out on, in the paddock. And and I just feel for everybody because it's a tough situation. And I think all will be fine because while I threw out there, you worry about repercussions. I don't see that coming from Andretti. They're, they're going to no, understand I that, I don't either. hey, Nathan Brown's a professional and we can work with him and we need him. And, you know, we want to do things the right way. So and that's that's part of it as well, that they're going to get that he's doing his job and he understands that they had people trying to do their job uh, and all will be fine and will mostly be forgotten here pretty soon. But wow, fascinating stuff. And there's still more to get into uh, on that about how they move forward. So that was the media aspect. We'll get into that and plenty more in your tweets too at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cabin coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Scott McLaughlin, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. 
Love the accent. Love it, love it, love it from Scott McLaughlin. This Saturday night at the Tom Wood Group Indianapolis Speedrome, powered by Lincoln Tech. It's the annual family fireworks extravaganza. Lighting up the sky, the racetrack, and sure to set off most every car alarm in the parking lot. Late models light up the track with wild and unpredictable 75 lap figure eights all presented by usa insulation the speed room is family friendly family friendly racing great food free parking and outrageous fun that's fireworks this saturday at the speed room for location information ticket prices and more go to speedroom.com kevin with the news of the day so i'll say hunter McElray winning his first indy lights race is part of the news of the day as we kind of give a little Love to the road to Indy this weekend. He dominated throughout the weekend with Andretti Autosports. So something went right for them. He led every session, one from pole in Indy Pro 2000. Kiko Porto and Lewis Foster won. I think Foster leads the Indy Pro 2000 championship with exclusive Autosport. And Miles Rowe continues to lead, or I think actually he took the lead back through the weekend in the USF 2000 championship, winning two of three on the podium for all three with Pabst Racing. Michael D. Orlando is close behind him. He won race number three. And the Jackson Lee Racing Program is going to need a lot of help. On lap 60 of 60, kid behind him missed the corner, hit him in the side, and destroyed his car. So for the first time, instead of waiting for people to come out the medical center, I was invited into the medical center. Luckily, he was okay. Banged his head just a little bit, and he was fine by the next morning but um we're going to be doing a telethon here sometime soon and there's your news of the day the telethon is the news of the day sorry to hear that for jackson uh circle city raceway is typically the cap to this uh segment but circle city raceway is off this weekend they return to action next weekend with a friday saturday and sunday spectacular all kinds of race cars going on there sprints midgets pro legends modifieds dirt cars uh actually dirt car ump ump modifieds and on the um Sunday, a full, I mean, just a full weekend next week. And so keep that in mind as we move into next week, circlecityraceway.com. All right, coming up in the next hour, still more conversation on where does Andretti go from here? Um, one of the things, we, we all said it, that's the problem when a driver leaving is basically known by February and confirmed, you know, by April. So what's next? Uh, where do things stand for a McLaren third driver? And much more, and plus a really entertaining race at Mid-Ohio. We'll get into that some more. Trackside 93.5-1075, The Fan. Hi, this is Kyle Kirkwood, and you're listening to Trackside. Hour number two. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, I believe we're set for Tuesday again next week. Still waiting for a schedule beyond that because two weeks from tonight should be the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. I do not know if the radio station still carries that or not. If they do, then we will move to another date. So we'll worry about that then. But we're set for next Tuesday night, 7 until 9. Also, before I forget, Kurt, we need to start spreading the word and allowing people to get their angry tweets composed. Uh, The next race is on Peacock exclusively. And if you have any problems with that, just let me know because I'll take care of it. I'm in charge of such things. But Peacock exclusively coming up for the Toronto race. The other thing is I have to make sure I work on my pronunciation for the locals because I like, I try, I don't always do it well, but try to enunciate. But it's, remember, we've had this discussion. 
No T. No second T. Toronto. I'm trying. I'll fail many times. And because it's Peacock to make everyone feel more comfortable, I'll be in the booth for the uh, the Toronto weekend. So it it wouldn't be a a full Peacock broadcast if you didn't have Radio Kevin anchoring things. So uh, Diff has uh, the track and field. Is it? called the world championships but a a a big 10-day run of really important track and field uh, events coming up in oregon so he'll miss toronto and iowa so that will be fun Uh, i would not mind pit road at all for toronto hopefully it's comfortable iowa that's going to feel real good sitting up in the booth for back-to-back days at three o'clock in the afternoon so i am quite happy with the way the scheduling worked out for that one and also just remember somebody you know i've seen a couple of notes oh wait a minute they never told us this no it was it was in the agreement i understand not everybody's gonna see everything you have a life going on but actually the contract between nbc and indycar allowed for two races exclusively on peacock and they found tv time for an extra race so this is the only one this season and it's you know it's a grand experiment we're seeing how all of this is going to work. We're going to see how Thursday night football works exclusively on Amazon Prime in the NFL next year, and we we go from here. But you know, a lot of us are hoping that we see as much terrestrial television as much as possible for as long as possible. All right, we'll get back to your tweets in a moment. At Kevin Lee twenty three at Kurt Cavan. We started touching on the Andretti thing, and and really just kind of started with the the conundrum of how do you cover that from a from a media aspect. Now let's talk about internally. Where do they go from here, especially considering one of the drivers is on the way out at the end of the season? And I have to believe that has um, encouraged Romain Grosjean to be very open and honest about what he thinks and how he's going to treat that teammates. And the question was asked of Rossi, you know, do you do any different? You're doing what you do. You're doing what you do at this point, but I, I just don't know. I don't know how this is going to work itself out the rest of the year. So I think there are, there are only two options, if you will. I think the first is what we call Grin and Barrett. You know, they don't, they can't make any changes or they're not going to make any changes to the driver lineup. And so they ride it out and just hope that enough, uh, point of emphasis was made by the team owner and as you mentioned earlier in the first hour that there is enough respect uh for the fact you were hired to do that job that you could be fired if if shenanigans continue so i think i think you know really what we're talking about here is grosjean and and rossi so i think ultimately those two will be as professional as they can be. They'll probably both make some comments along the way. There may be some light contact along the way, but I don't, I just, I think ultimately they'll be grinning and bearing it, whether you're the driver, the team owner, the crew, you know, the team manager, what have you. I think that's kind of the only first option. The second option is more dramatic and one I had not even considered. Well, let me rephrase that. I didn't consider it very long until you and I had a conversation off air that, could they not have the same driver lineup if something else escalates? If this problem gets worse, could they make a change to their driver lineup for the rest of 22? I don't think that's possible, but I suppose you must consider it an option. And all partners 
would have to be in on this for such a change to be made. Now, was this a good weekend? No, it was not. Do they need to do something like that now? No, they don't. No, they don't. These kind of things happen. And as long as there's no more noticeable issues on track and they drive each other with respect and mostly just stay away from hitting your teammate. You know, rule number one is always don't hit your teammate, drive your teammate with a a little more care than you would anyone else. We all understand there are going to be elbows out and there are some drivers uh, and, and both of these drivers, one of the reasons they're so successful is they don't give a flip about what anyone else thinks. And if you try to pass them on the outside, you're going in the grass And that is pretty consistent at every form of racing that if you try to pass someone on the outside, um, you run the risk of them shoving you off the track. But it's not expected that that's going to be the way with your teammates. So as long as that doesn't continue, then all will be fine. And it's fine if they don't have a relationship otherwise. And I get the impression they don't. I don't think they interact I suspect the engineers do the talking amongst those teams, and that's about the extent of it. Well, the other thing that they must do is represent the brand. If they don't represent the brand, or as we saw this weekend in mid-Ohio, they embarrass the brand, whether that's Andretti Autosport, whether that's the respective sponsors on their cars, if it's deemed that they're not representing themselves and their organization and their sponsors, et cetera, et cetera, then that's the other way that it could happen. I mean, they may not have, maybe they just have a little dust up and that's fine. But if they get out of the car and just make it a, make it a, a blank show, so to speak, as they did in this case, I mean, this was an embarrassment. Uh, Michael said that, uh, Michael said in a statement to the AP, it's unacceptable. You cannot as an organization look like that and have the meltdown. <laughs> By the way, one of the funniest things uh, Jenna Fryer wrote in the Associated Press, her lead in a column was that, uh, you know, Michael's trying to get to Formula One and and show that his team is is worthy of contributing to Formula One. And, and she pointed out that this last weekend is be a great example for Netflix and 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 you show yeah. that they can uh, they can they can play that game as well but you, you think Gunther have... Steiner's entertaining wait till you see this <laughs> yeah so uh credit to uh, to Jenna on that one that was a funny one I'm sure that that uh will be remembered by Michael but um you know it's just you can't rep- you got to represent the brand and you can't embarrass the brand and not just this brand Michael Andretti and his his organization but but the partners as well and so you know they may have a little dust up on the racetrack if they can get out and handle it like professionals and and not let it escalate the way post race did it at uh, at uh, mid Ohio, then I think everybody can ride this out and uh, we can get into 23 and it'll be interesting as well. But to the extreme, if it does happen again, and you mentioned the partners, it it potentially would be precipitated by them. If someone from auto nation or Napa, I don't know if Napa's coming back next year or not. They weren't mentioned in the Kyle Kirkwood announcement. I, I hope they are staying and moving to another car, but I believe that's uncertain at this point. But if AutoNation says, I don't want this, or if DHL says, I don't want this, then you got real problems. Uh, I, I think, you know, Grosjean is, is going to be fine. The only question would be, because um, I've heard this brought up earlier this year, in a lame duck situation, would you, if it's not going well, just say, 
like you've seen in other sports, we're going to continue to pay you, but you're going to be on the reserve list the rest of the year. You're going to be inactive because we don't think it's the right relationship or the right environment for everyone else. I highly doubt that it comes to that because, one, they're going to behave from now on. But if something like this happens again, it would probably take a huge combination of things coming out. You know, for example, what if Kyle Kirkwood were available early? AJ Foyt Racing is in some financial difficulty because I don't know that they've received a whole lot of payments from Rocket. And this may have been Tatiana Calderon's last race. And it's been said that this does not impact Kyle Kirkwood continuing. And I believe that. I'm, I'm sure the plan is for him to continue the rest of the season. And I believe he will continue the rest of the season. But just as a hypothetical, what if it was the other way around? What if it was dependent on rocket money, keeping Kyle Kirkwood in the car, someone funding that, and it went away, and they went to each other and said, hey, um, we can fulfill whatever salary promise you made to him, and we're going to put him in the 27 car now for the rest of the season. Chance of that happening? Are less than two percent, but I just throw it out there. Yes, but what if what if Foyt comes to the conclusion of we'd like to see Benjamin Peterson in a car? We'd like to get go ahead and get him year. rolling. Yeah. yeah, and you start thinking about next year, and we know Kyle's going to Andretti anyway. And I mean, so I don't know that it leaves. I don't think Foyt is in a position of desperation here to keep Kyle because I think it has some options for 2023 and it starts it sounds like with Benjamin Peterson who has backing and has a great relationship with the team and I think they would at maybe not yet and and they've certainly appreciated and loved working with Kyle Kirkwood but it's not like they'd be left empty-handed how about one of the shockers of the year and this is what we talked about kind of mid-season as well because Kyle Kirkwood has showed pace. He qualified ninth this weekend. Uh, I looked it up today. He has one finish better than 17th this year. He's fourth in the rookie of the year standings now. He's behind Devlin, which isn't a big surprise because Devlin DeFrancesco is fast and he's with a bigger team, and it's only one point. But he's fourth in the rookie of the year standings. He has that 10th place finish at Long Beach. And then there's been a lot of would've, should've, could'ves this season. I don't know what happened in mid-Ohio. He went off, and he mentioned, you know, I think he was almost alluding to it felt like something broke because it wasn't the outlap. It was the second lap, and, you know, the car just bottomed out. So they're kind of on the brink of that leader circle situation at this point going through that once again. I think the 11 is actually in a little is in decent shape because of what J.R. Hildebrand did on on the ovals. So it's different, different situation there. But you. Um, yeah, I just got to note Kyle's behind Jimmy Johnson in points right now. Uh, you, you've got an interesting scenario there. I still would say I don't see that happening, but it is something to watch moving forward. And when people like Scott McLaughlin are saying, yeah, we've seen this this coming, who knows what else has been going on behind scenes? There could become a point where they just said, this is untenable. It's not doing us any good. It's not like we need to write the ship before next year because the ship's going to be very different next year. So let's just get started early. Likely to happen? No. Can't 100% rule it out. Yeah, and, and, and Ross Hill 
I think I know how Rossi will react. He'll react just kind of as he did after this race, you know, Sunday. He said stoically, and <laughs> yeah, he, he was stoic. He uh, he gave a great answer. Didn't inflame the situation. He'll just he'll just uh, and let that what helps. happens. Yeah, it will. But yeah. that that's not going to go over well with Grosjean either if they have contact. No. And then what doesn't – I don't know how this is managed. You know, and then the other guy who's on a long-term contract is calling his teammate an idiot multiple times. So uh, good luck. Good luck to all all involved. All right, let's get to the Twitter inbox, and then we'll start covering some of the other things from the race as well and back to some of the discussion from last hour. Kurt St. Angelo asked – isn't the real question, why do they close the pits at all, except when the pit entrance or exit is blocked? Could you please explain the policy of closing the pits on a yellow and potentially rob Palo of an Indy 500 victory? It's a good question, one that needs to be explained again, because it's been a while since we have, and off the top of my head, I probably won't even do it uh, exactly correctly. So maybe we need to get, you know, just a statement. Maybe this should be explained again on the TV broadcast. So in our, our race control meeting, but you've been in race control, I know the basics of it would be safety. You don't want people speeding around the track trying to hustle to get into the pits because if it closes, everyone's going to pack up immediately. So there is no benefit at all to going even two miles an hour faster than anyone else. That's part one that comes to mind. And part two would be, isn't it difficult to sort the order if they all just start randomly diving in pit lane? And especially if you're in an oval race and uh, there are people on different lap counts, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I get that that's part of the issue, but maybe safety is just number one there. I think safety is one. Uh, and by the way, I think I always think it's difficult, especially on an oval who fell a lap down, who, you know, all this pit action, it, it, uh, it can be pretty, uh, confusing pretty quickly so but yeah number one is safety uh th that's the thing but it, it would be good to hear kind of the pros and cons again and you, you should be able to get that in your conference call I, I think maybe it's just good to have just the the one or two line statement that we just have it's probably worth especially on network television um so that's a good question that needs to be explained and reminded to everyone as to why this happens because you know i've heard the answer before and it, it makes sense. A uh, virtual safety car is some sort of an option as well. Uh, but I don't fully understand how that works. And I know some people have been a proponent of that, but I think there's some some drawbacks or uh, issues that that doesn't make that the easy answer to. Let's see. Next question is we've done those. We've done those. Buck McCoy asks, drivers definitely not working together on the start back of the field. Okay, this was... Uh, he was answering CBB's question. Another start waved off. Any new info on why the drivers can't, quote, get lined up on time? I, th I think it's difficult getting around there. Mid-Ohio, I think, is particularly difficult given given the keyhole, given just, you know, you can't come rushing through there. Uh, where else did they have the have the issue um, the last race at Road America. Road America. Pretty That's, disjointed. That should have been a place where it could I think. come together was, was, better. Maybe I'm thinking of Detroit. Maybe I'm thinking of Detroit. But it's been in the last couple of races. It was at Detroit. And, and uh, you know, it's that's still not an easy place. A pretty sharp, you know, relatively sharp corner down there 
uh, where they start to pack up real quickly and getting everybody through there cleanly. Uh, but it does look like a little bit of lollygagging back there. I would just, I might've just hold them a little bit longer, but you know, the longer you hold them, the more your trouble you're asking for. It, it does seem like you've got a long straightaway going to the keyhole. You ought to be able to get lined up on that long straightaway. So it likely is those in the back. They want to lag back as far as they can because the idea is they want to gas it and get some temp in the tires. That's what you're yep. wanting to do. Yep. And the guys up front don't really have the opportunity to do that. So that's what you're trying to do in the back. And you're ultimately just hoping that you can time it out correctly. And sometimes they don't get it timed out correctly. Uh, part of it to me would be, and this is why I think they don't always wave them off, is, hey, too bad. You know, if you want to start an extra three seconds behind everybody else, then there you go. We're actually going to even wave the green flag earlier or hope the leader goes earlier because the leader kind of determines to some extent uh, on restarts and so forth. But start of the race, I guess you're waiting, waiting and watching for for the green flag to go before you can. Uh, also, we have from, uh, from Andrew Howell. It was nice meeting you at Mid-Ohio. Thank you, Andrew. The idea was mentioned last week on the podcast about Colton Herta going to McLaren in 24. After the events of the weekend, do you think he might start thinking about a change of scenery? Hmm. Yeah, I don't imagine you're, you're super happy about the dysfunction. And when you get turned by a teammate who's a lap down, who uh, immediately apologized for the mistake on the radio, and then, then after the race, I don't know what don't options know. he would have. I don't know how long the contract is. Well, I do know this. Um, if he's offered Formula One, he's going. He's not going next year. So Nathan Brown posted something on Twitter from the Indy Star today that he had talked to Zach Brown. I didn't talk to Colton this weekend, but I asked Pato, do you know when your F1 test is? And he said no. Um, but Nathan said that Zach said it will be after the season. So the fact that it's after the season means that – and maybe even Ricardo has been confirmed for next year. I don't know whether he has or not. I don't know if it means a lot at this point. But the fact that they're not getting in a car until the end of the year after the season is over means that they are not under consideration for a ride in 2023 in Formula 1. So it Agreed. would still be a 2024 endeavor uh, once that contract is up. But Colton's going if the opportunity comes – and then Michael Andretti might be in a situation where he has a very different lineup than what he has at this point. Because it's looking like it's going to be really hard for get him to get his F1 team going. Well, and you wonder stand. about Colton Herta's feelings. Of, you know, I mean, where does he come in with with regard to Grosjean? You know, what is his relationship? Um, obviously. You know, we didn't hear from from Colton immediately after. Uh, if I had to guess, he's Team Rossi. I think I think he and Alex are tight. Now, maybe he's uh, ambivalent and is just one of these people that kind of gets along with everyone. But I think he and Alex are tight. No, I I, I know I'm sure they are. Um, but I also think he's he's as close to being not only Team Rossi and ambivalent as they come. Uh, I think Very when he gets likely. to be put the helmet on. Uh, he he could care less if if uh, 
Jeff Gordon is his teammate. You know what I mean? He, he, he doesn't care. I mean, he's a race. He's a single minded race car driver. Uh, he'll respect his teammates and so forth. But I, I don't think he's as, uh, you know, uh, anyway, it'd be interesting to, to really know the insight on how he felt about Grosjean and working with him moving forward. But I don't think he has another option anyway for 2023. No, not for 23, but the question was 2024 and yeah. what he his contract is probably up about that time. So maybe this will go to the next part of things and just our weekly update on where things stand with Errol McLaren SP and Ganassi and everything else. So I don't have anything firm, but I'm starting to feel a little stronger about convictions. And I believe the number seven car, I believe, I don't know. I just believe it's between Renus VK and Felix Rosenquist. And what a weekend for Renus VK to rebound and finish fourth and likely adding to the frustration for Felix Rosenquist. I would hope that when he's assessed, you're looking at he did nothing wrong. He qualified fourth. He's running third, and it's not his fault. And he's been strong all year long. Uh, I had a nice chat with Felix. He said he's been told he's not being judged on his performance the rest of the year. They know what he is. They believe in him. And I said, essentially, do you buy that? And he is maybe not exactly these words, but said, no, you're always judged on your performance. You know, logic would say if if I win two or three races, they're not taking me out of the seat. If I finish in the top five in points. Now, here's the other thing, though, that goes beyond that. And I believe him because Felix is a straight shooter. And, and I've talked to some other people about the Formula E world and it's an important world even though i think drivers first and foremost want to you know the pecking order is frankly formula one then it's indycar then it's formula e certainly for drivers that have been in north america the indycars are more fun to drive they feel like they're that's what i got into this for but formula e pays really well and from the team aspect formula e is not just oh, it's another series we're involved in. It is critically important from a commercial standpoint. And what I've been told is it is actually a lot harder to go find someone acceptable in that seat. And that's the challenge, that Felix might be sent over there simply because it's easier to find someone very close in abilities to him for an IndyCar than someone that can do off the bat what he can do in Formula E as a former race winner. It apparently is even harder for someone new to come in and get used to a totally different type of race car and a situation involved. So essentially, Felix Rosenquist is in the management business at this point trying to find McLaren a quality Formula E driver as another option. Well, I feel for, for Felix in that situation when he wants to stay and probably understands that his the best way to put this puzzle together from a McLaren standpoint is for him to be in Formula E. But um, I've still believed it's a, if you're just straight looking at it from an IndyCar standpoint, it's a, it's Felix Rosenquist versus 2024. And, and that, that replacement more so than, than anybody else for 23. But as you mentioned, it, the Formula E side of this may drive it. Back to the Ganassi situation, I do still think Zach Brown probably is going to take another Hail Mary at Scott Dixon and Alex Pillow and ask Chip Ganassi if they can be bought out of their contract. But I don't think that's going to happen. I feel 
pretty strongly that both are going to be driving for Ganassi in 23. I do not feel as strongly that both are going to be driving for Ganassi in 2024. Could be a it could be really to McLaren's benefit if both of them are very interested in this opportunity for 24. It may change uh, the negotiating uh, leverage that McLaren has because I could see Pelot looking for a real big payday because he's probably been, well, you would think, underpaid for the value that he delivered to Ganassi in 22 and in 20 or 21 and in 22. And then this whole idea, uh, there was a, a racer opinion story about uh, Silly Season relative to Dixon and, and whether how much McLaren was offering in terms of, you know, management of the team and leadership moving forward and what does post-retirement look like and and just, you know, what what will Chip respond with? I think, you know, this will be an interesting time for Scott Dixon, but I, I think uh, I think Polo will be eager to see what McLaren has to offer for 24, and that may, may reduce – uh, his leverage to some degree because, you know, they're going to have both Dixon and Polo in play for 24. And then go back to that Colton Herta question. What if his contract is up at the end of next year? You potentially have an opening at Ganassi, McLaren, Penske, Will Power will be at the end of his contract next year. Oh, boy. You think silly season this year was interesting and it got started in February? Um, kind of sounds like 2024 is already getting started now in, in some aspects. So uh, we'll get into what else we've missed. There's still a lot to go through from this race. More Twitter questions all coming up. Trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. 25th, 1st to 3rd, and even worse than that, all the way in the back for Will Power. Could probably be a smooth jazz disc jockey if he wanted to. I like that. that. I love that opening. In fact, I, I could argue that he could do all of them, and let's just have him about seven or eight different ways, and we'll just, you know, he'll be our <laughs> let's intros. Get, let's get Will to do some books on tape. That could be a nice yeah. side project for him as well to the twitter inbox at kevin lee 23 at kurt cabin at bunchy cb chad bunch is there anywhere on the indycar calendar with a gap between the catch fence and a tire barrier could not believe it was possible for a car to get stuck like joe did uh, in the f1 race and he said also can we all appreciate the amr crew after the wreck i can't believe russell thought he needed to help and then got penalized yeah how about that so twice this weekend in other series in the Xfinity race at Road America, uh, this is just another topic as well. You need to go, go see the clip for Sage Karam. He's getting quite comfortable and and I think gained a lot of fans by speaking his mind after he, he got into it with Noah Gregson a little bit in the Xfinity race and they were banging through turn one and through through turn three coming out and then headed down to five. Noah Gregson just slams and turns straight right crashes sage Karam, obliterates the field behind them no one sees brandon brown go hard into the wall myatt snyder came by and, and got crushed and maya jumps out of the car and runs just like you saw george russell do across the track because there was nobody there 
for this driver that got out of the car and then slumped down to the ground in pain. And and the same thing happened with, with George Russell looking, hey, there's nobody here. Uh, letter of the law, I guess, if you leave your car, looks like sometimes maybe some common sense could be applied in these circumstances. Yeah. Uh, having said that, the, the, the safety team went for Alex Albon, who had a big hit himself. Um, you know, that that was that was a pretty uh, headfirst impact that, that kind of went unnoticed. But, you know, even from an announcing standpoint, uh, the initial play-by-play missed the fact that Joe went sliding through and up against the fence like that. I, I mean, it's a tough thing. I, you got multiple cars. You know, you're always trying to decide which one to go to first. I mean, you're making quick decisions. Uh, I'll just say this. I saw a post uh, Donnie Graves pointed out as a corner worker once said, uh, this was on Facebook, I saw this. Thank God cars don't get into the catch fences very often as they have to be maintain- maintained and weather eats them and we just pray that if a car is going into one, it's it's a relatively new one or there's no spectators behind it. Um, but, you know, they're not all built to the same spec. Uh, so thank, thank God uh, Silverstone has the money to make that fence, you know, in pretty good shape because that would have been – and, and my comment about Russell wasn't necessarily about uh, lack of attention by their their safety team because you said they had multiple cars to go to, and some of them, just like the TV broadcast, probably didn't see that car, and you, you couldn't see it, didn't know where it was, and that's why Russell was running there because, hey, I saw this car. I know where it's at. Let's go find it. Uh, but it was more of the fact that he was not allowed to continue in the race. Oh, yeah. The, uh, now, the argument that F1 would have is – you're not allowed because the, he tried to restart the car and it wouldn't start. So sports cars has had this rule before as well. You're not allowed to seek assistance and it varies from series to series. Um, you know, the car was probably pretty damaged to begin with. I don't know if it would have driven back or not, but luckily all okay. And after all of that, if you saw the last seven or eight laps, the race from what se- second to fifth, my goodness. You're not yeah, seeing that many motorsports for a while. Yeah, it was sensational. The fact we saw Lewis Hamilton pass two cars in the same corner and he got passed back, but uh, that was a dramatic moment. And and they had great shuffling between, uh, as you said, second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, maybe even back to six. So they had real good action. Uh, e- even after that, I saw some comments. I hadn't watched it live Uh watched it on Monday, but then people made the comment on social media as I was waiting for the IndyCar race and said, man, I hope the IndyCar race is as good as uh, F1 was. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a scary accident. And um, I don't know to the answer to the question, if there's any place on the IndyCar circuit where the fence doesn't meet the barrier, I suppose it's possible. I've often thought you know, you could, you might be able to, under extraordinary circumstances, squeeze a car between, uh, you know, the barrier and mm-hmm. maybe not to that extent. But when the force of the car comes in there as it does, car's heavy. And, you know, if there's mm-hmm. any movement in the wall, surely there's some temporary street circuit places where that, in theory, could happen. But, uh, you know, Ideally, we say you this all want the time. No space or you want more space? We say it all the time. Uh, the best way to uh, fix or, you know, to address a situation is to have a car get there because we just you can't 
sometimes you can't dream up the scenarios where a car would end up there. I mean, you know, he, he happened to hit with the floor of the car into the fence, which dropped him straight down. If he hits that, you know, more, you know, wheel to wheel with the fence, he doesn't end up behind there that way. And on Road America, just a thought on that, I'd mentioned the future is a little bit uncertain. They haven't announced whether Cup is going to return next year. The general reviews that I saw, I watched both races on on delay as well, and they weren't super entertaining. Um, it's it's difficult. And I, I think I saw this brought up by someone, and I think there's a point to that. I think the stage breaks lessen the opportunity for entertainment that you don't get that random caution. Everybody's on the same strategy, essentially. Yes, sometimes somebody comes in a couple of laps if they're not worried about stage points, but uh, maybe just a traditional race might have worked out a little bit better. I don't know this, but I think there's a decent chance the Cup is not back next year if that Chicago street race happens, as what I'm hearing it might. They're talking about something uh, big event. That's a new event, and that's the one that I've heard about before, so that's my best guess. And Road America would probably be the casualty for that from our world. Not all bad for IndyCar, that they're the big show in town there. Uh, I don't know whether there would still be an Xfinity standalone or if they would lose that weekend. I think NASCAR is trying to do fewer Xfinity standalone races uh, and truck races and so forth. They do have one this weekend. They have a truck race at Mid-Ohio. Uh, Cup is in Atlanta, I think. I think Cup's in Atlanta, but but the truck race in mid-Ohio. One of Jackson's buddies from USF 2000 uh, ran out of budget and couldn't finish, but was able to find the budget. He's going to do the truck race. His name is Trey Burke. So this is going to be interesting. It's one that I've kind of kicked around from a commercial aspect. There's only about 10 truck drivers that I think are really good road course racers. So I want to see how Trey does. He's raced with Jackson the last couple of years in USF 2000, and he's going to run, uh, and I think the number 20 truck at Mid-Ohio coming up this weekend. A question from Don. He says, seems like there have been a fair amount of issues trying to get a clean lap and qualifying at road courses. Just ask Newgarden. Uh, oh, by the way, I'll make an aside. Uh, some, some, I think that got some attention uh, over the weekend because – you know, Joseph was not in a, a fantastic mood when I questioned, asked him, uh, you know, what are you guys trying to get answered right now? Nope, no questions to answer. Just don't have any track time. I've got the slow pokes in front of me. And, you know, I think some people thought that, that Joseph snapped at me a little bit. So when I see him on Sunday morning, first thing he comes over and apologizes. No, 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 no. You don't need to apologize for that. If that's the snippiest you get, that shows you what kind of a good guy Joseph Newgarden is. All was fair there. Probably could have asked the question a different way, but I actually I just like the emotion, and we got the answer out of it. So I want to finish Don's question, then a couple of other thoughts. Uh, Road America might be the exception since it's four miles long, but given the outlook for as many as 28 full-time entrants next year, do you think they should revisit breaking around one to three groups of nine or eight, maybe base the procedure on the length of the course? But again, Road America seems to be the only one that can support 13 or 14 cars for round one. Yeah, I do. I I think they should uh, con consider uh, fewer cars in those in those sessions for the reason, especially a place like Toronto, a place like uh, Mid Ohio that not not particularly long. And you know, we think about Nashville, Mid Ohio. Be tough. Yeah, 
yeah, that's going to be tough. Uh, and by the way, on uh, Joseph, I knew he was uh, really in a snippy mood when he called you dude. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, if he would have just just continued on or called you Kevin or something, but he called you. Dude, I was so. not offended. I was not. I was not offended. Hey, the other thing I've wondered about, too, is nobody's getting any laps in this first practice there. I think the tracks want more action on Friday. So that added this hour and 15 minute practice. But it's the same amount of tires uh, and the, the same amount of tires. But everyone's sitting at this point. So here's what you could do. I'm wondering, do you just split it up into two different groups for the first practice and everybody gets 40 minutes for group one? Uh, and then you're going to have to run because really what they have tires for are 45 minute sessions. Then you get an hour and 15 or you get an hour 30 of actual on track action to split between the two groups. All right, we're late. Back more next. Hi, this is Pato Award, and you're listening to Trackside. Final segment tonight. Don't forget, we're back again next Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. And then we will be on Wednesday, the week after next, because we'll have the All-Star Game coming up. Uh, we barely scratched the surface of the Mid-Ohio race. The good thing is we have a week off, and we'll be able to do that and go through the rest of the box score. And I'm sure there will be new news that we'll get into coming up next week on the show. And we'll remind you again that the Toronto race is going to be exclusively on Peacock. And you know it'll still be on the radio right here at 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. For Kurt Cabin, Sam Rumps, I'm Kevin Lee. Thanks for joining us tonight on Trackside.